Uh, as you guys know, we've been in this series uh, called The Mothers of Jesus, and we've been uh, looking at uh, the women that we find in Matthew chapter 1. The way that Matthew introduces Jesus in his gospel is with a genealogy. And so he, he, he does this family tree for us, and he does something really surprising. He includes women in the family tree. And for us, we would include women in our family trees, but in the ancient Near East, they would not have. And so this was a, a, a real curveball for Matthew's original readers. They would have had their ears perked up, thinking, why in the world are there women in this genealogy? But there were. And there's a, a couple uh, unique contributions that they make. They, they all make their own, uh, they can all stand on their own two feet, but there's a couple that are worth noting that they have in common. You know, three of these four women aren't Israelites. And so that tells us that Jesus is a cross-cultural savior. If you did DNA testing with Jesus, you would find several different ethnic strands. He wasn't the purest of Jews. See, Jesus' DNA, it foreshadows what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 7 when we see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne of God. Therefore, we should get used to being around people who are different from us, especially in a cultural sense, and you don't have to go far. I don't know if you realize this, but in Lexington, our public school system is majority-minority, meaning it is less than 50% comprised of Caucasians cross-cultural. Part of the reason we're here in this building, in this neighborhood, is because it gives us exposure to all kinds of people. But the other thing about these women, besides the fact that they come from different ethnicities, is also their reputations. And their reputations are bound up with their sexuality. I don't know if you remember, but Tamar seduces her father-in-law. Rahab's profession is as a prostitute. King David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and now we're here with Ruth. And she uses her sexuality to procure blessing for herself and her mother-in-law. But for many of us, our sexuality is a very painful, shameful part of who we are. It's either because we were taken advantage of in a sexual way, or we've misused our sexuality to meet some existential need that we have. So what does Jesus think about us when he finds us in these spots where we're hurting because of our used or misused sexuality? What does he do? Well, look at the genealogy. The genealogy says there's grace for you and there's grace for me with our sexualities. The genealogy says that Jesus isn't ashamed of these women with complicated relationships with their sexuality. Therefore, he's not ashamed of you. And as we said throughout this series, we are looking at this genealogy because it shows us the kind of people that Jesus came from. And if you know who these people are, then you'll know the kind of people that Jesus came to. And so today we'll be looking at Ruth. And let's read part of her story from chapter 1. A little bit later we'll read part of her story from chapter 4 as well. We'll start in verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest 
in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and she wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept and aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Luke said, Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. The word of the Lord. When you get to Ruth in the Old Testament, here's where it sits. It sits right behind the judges and right before 1 Samuel. And we find out in the first chapter that we just read that it took place, this book, during the time of the judges. The time of the judges was after the parting of the Red Sea. It was after the wandering in the wilderness. It was after God's people, the Israelites, had entered the land. But it was before the monarchy was set up. It was before the days of Saul and David and Solomon took the throne. And these days, the days of the judges were very, very, very dark days in Israel. No one took God seriously. They worshipped pagan gods. They were oppressed by their foreign enemies. And times were tough. And this is the backdrop going on here in this book, the book of Ruth. And so here in chapter 1, we're introduced to the family. There are three couples. Did you catch them? There was Naomi and her husband. And Naomi and her husband had two sons. Each of those two sons married. One married a woman named Orpah. It's not Oprah. Orpah. The other married Ruth. And all three of these men, the father and the two sons, they all died. And so we're left with three widows. We have Naomi, who's the oldest, the mother. And she's not just a widow, she also has lost her two sons. And it gets worse for her. She doesn't have any grandchildren. It keeps getting worse, there's a famine. And doesn't that sound like the life you've always dreamed of? I was listening to a therapist this week. I wasn't in a therapy session this week. But I was just listening to a therapist, uh, what he was saying. And uh, he said there are three realities that are unavoidable in life. Pain, uncertainty, and constant work. And I thought, man, what a buzzkill. Just what I wanted for Christmas. But I think the Bible would agree with this man's assessment. See, the Bible is utterly realistic about our lives. If you think you're going to find nothing but unicorns and glitter and balloons in the Bible, you've got a faulty expectation. But that's usually what's presented to us in the American Christian subculture. 
It might be what's presented to you by your Aunt Judy who goes to church all the time and expects you to do the same. But story like Ruth and Naomi's, they tell us that life can get empty. And it tells us that life can get empty and it's not as a consequence of our poor choices. See, no one chooses for their spouse to die. No one chooses for their children to die. No one chooses to have a crippling accident. No one chooses to go through a life-threatening illness. No one chooses to be a victim of abuse. See, life's a place of pain and heartache and sorrow and suffering. And maybe for you, you've battled an illness, mental, physical. You've battled an allergy that has no positive prognosis in sight. You've lost a job. You've ended up in a bad financial situation all because of the choices of others. The number of ways that we experience emptiness or suffering, it's infinite. But what do we see God do in Ruth 1? He puts someone in Naomi's life. Do you see her? It's Ruth. And Ruth's hurting, by the way. And Ruth, in many ways, comes out of nowhere to be Naomi's needed companion. And this is what God does for us, too. If you're wondering, how am I going to experience God's grace in the midst of sorrow? It will almost certainly include a companion of God's choosing. Now, this week, we're having officer training, deacon, deaconess, and elder. And we did an exercise this week from Psalm 124. In Psalm 124, the psalmist is thinking about what his life would be like if God were not on his side. And so what we did for just a few minutes is... Uh, We we read it a few times. I gave space between the reading for us. And we started thinking about if God weren't on our side, what would our life be like? And then we started thinking, well, how did we experience God being on our side? And for all of us, you know what the common thread was? People. God sent people into our lives that we might know his presence. And God did that for me. I mean, who I listed, I listed out my grandmothers. I listed out my youth pastor when I was in high school. Listen to out a couple friends. And see, God will come to your side too. You can try to isolate all you want. I've got a feeling Naomi really wanted to be by herself. I mean, she pretty much begged Orpah and, and Ruth to go back to Moab. But God sent her a companion, sent her Ruth, and God will send someone to you too. But look at this from another angle. You see Naomi here, she's totally unaware of the gift of Ruth. There's no thank you on Naomi's lips to Ruth. There's no, I'd really be grateful for some company on this difficult road back home. And I think it's because she's so engrossed in her pain that she's only complaining and she can't see the gift she's been given in plain sight. See, notice something else. Notice that Ruth is converted here. You see it in verse 16. In verse 16, Ruth expresses her commitment to Naomi and to God and says, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you say, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And so when she says to Naomi, your God's going to be my God, she's in effect saying, I'm converting from one faith system to another. Ruth is a Moabite. And to be a Moabite means that Ruth was a pagan. I mean, that's not a derogatory term, meaning that she's immoral. It means that she worshipped the gods of her pagan Moabite religion. And in the ancient Near East, there was no such thing as being non-religious, no such thing as being secular, no such thing as being an atheist. Everyone was religious. 
The Edomites had their religious system. The Egyptians had their religious system. You get the point. And you might say, well, Mars, that's their archaic. I mean, we've moved past that. We now know that modern science can explain so many of the questions that religion tries to answer. I understand that. There have been massive technological advancements over the last 200 years, for which I'm very thankful for. hope you are too. But I would venture to say that even if that's your posture, that science explains things away that religion tries to answer, I would venture to say that you're very religious. You just don't call it religion. In place of religion, you, you, you might just be just as passionate about your political ideology, your economic ideology, your family ideology. You're, you give yourself to it in the same way that religious people give themselves to their religion. And if that's you, there's good news for you today. There's also some bad news. Here's the bad news. The bad news is that you're an outsider with regards to Jesus. The good news is Ruth. See, Ruth didn't grow up in church either. Ruth hadn't been a Christian her whole life either. She was ignorant to the things of God too. But God comes after people like you and like Ruth and grafts them in. Now, can I spoil the end of the story for you? See, what God does is he rescues Naomi and Ruth from their emptiness. He makes their lives full. And I want to read the last 10 verses of the book for you. You kind of caught some of it there in Justin's song. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child in her arms, cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. They named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. See, what happens here is that Ruth marries a man. His name's Boaz, and she gives birth to a son named Obed. And what we see here now is that Naomi has protection through Ruth in Boaz and Obed. She's also got a purpose. It sounds like her life now has meaning as she serves as a caregiver for this little boy. And Naomi especially, and Ruth to a lesser degree, they are now full. But, but how did it get this way? I mean, what happened between the sobs of chapter 1 and the songs of chapter 4? Well, two things happen. The first thing happens in chapter 2 where Ruth gleans the fields. You see, once these women, they, they, they go from Moab to Bethlehem, and now they've got to figure out, how are we going to eke out a living here? I mean, neither have got great resumes. I mean, Naomi just says, I'm an old lady. Ruth says, I'm a Moabite. Their prospects are really low, but Ruth sees an open door. She hears this piece of Jewish legislation that makes provision for the poor. 
There's a rule that the poor are legally allowed to glean the fields of lands that they don't own after the harvest. See, a landowner back in Israel's day, they couldn't squeeze their profits for the last penny. They had to go through and take what they could and whatever fell on the ground, whatever was left on the plant was for the poor to come and glean. They played a role. They played a role in providing for the poor, yet this was a very dangerous practice for women. There was this fear of women being assaulted. And if you were a foreigner like Ruth in these fields, not only were you a woman, but you were also a Moabite. And there was especially great violence for them. But this didn't stop Ruth. She went, she worked hard, and she was noticed by a young man named Boaz. Boaz owned the land, and he observed her work ethic. And so he inquires of her to his servants, and his servants tell him that she's in Bethlehem because she came home with Naomi to care for her. And so Boaz is plotting these data points, and he's thinking, all right, she works hard. She cares for others. We see this with Naomi, sacrificially. So Boaz thinks, I'm going to give her some access to me. So he invites her and the other servants, other people gleaning the fields in for a meal. And he speaks to her at this meal. She, he's very complimentary to her. And so Ruth goes home at the end of the day, tells Naomi about her day of work. She comes home with some leftovers to give Naomi. She comes home with a big bag of, that she had gleaned. It's been a big day. So take inventory here. You, you got chapter one was really dark. Lots of loss. But there's this glimmer of hope in Ruth, who is new to the faith and who commits to Naomi. There's a little more hope in chapter two. Ruth has a job, albeit the lowest of the low kind of job. Things aren't exactly great, but they're nowhere near chapter 4. And to get to chapter 4, you've got to cover the material of chapter 3. And when Ruth comes home with this big sack of barley and comes home with some leftovers, Naomi's plotting some data points herself. Instead, so Naomi draws up this plan for Ruth. She sees an opportunity with Boaz. And so she urges Ruth to make herself as attractive as possible. And to go to where Boaz is sleeping. And after he's had his fill of food and drink, lie down next to him. Now think about it. Is this the kind of counsel you would give to an attractive young woman in her 20s? Probably not. I mean, is she really going to doll herself up and lay beside a man to whom she's not married in the middle of the night and then see what happens? I mean, is this possibly the way that God can do things? Is it conceivable that a sensible Christian would ever give counsel like this? See, you can't gloss over this. You can't sanitize this. There's no way to avoid the risk involved in this scheme. But then Ruth pushes it even further. She goes and does everything Naomi tells her to, and then she proposes to him. Can you imagine this happening on Tinder? I mean, her profile would read, single Moabite woman, widowed, childless, lives with her mother-in-law, Seeks a well-to-do Bethlehem businessman with a view towards marriage, and you must love my mother-in-law. 
But this plan worked out. In God's good plan, Boaz would not act with rashness. He would not act as a red-blooded man. Rather, what Boaz did is that he took responsibility for being the next of kin to Naomi, and he married Ruth. He took Naomi in as well. He became their redeemer, and they had a child. But let me tell you, this book's not named Boaz. This book is named Ruth. Why? Well, it's not because Ruth's a hero because she departed from cultural expectations. That's not it. It's not because she was bold. It's not because she's courageous. It's because she was vulnerable. It was her willingness to not let her weakness cripple her. I mean, you do realize that she could have been raped and even killed in the fields. And nobody would have cared because she was a woman, because she was poor, and because she was a foreigner. Weak. Boaz could have easily misinterpreted Ruth and Naomi's somewhat reckless, naive, and perhaps even foolish plan. Weak. Think about it. I mean, all of Ruth's vulnerability here is largely based on her love for Naomi. I mean, think about what Ruth could have done. She could have done what Orpah did. Her life would have been a lot easier and much more comfortable if she just would have stayed in Moab, where she knew people. It's the only place she's ever been. It's a place where she had family. It's a place where she understood the culture. But no, she left with Naomi because she loved her. I mean, that's really how you know how much someone loves you, isn't it? To the degree that they put their weakness out in the open. And to the degree that they risk rejection is the degree to which they love you. To the degree that someone elects to be weak and give from their resources for your benefit is the degree to which they love you. Doesn't that smell like Jesus to you? See, he became weak. He risked rejection. He let himself become vulnerable. He left what was comfortable. He took a risk. See, Jesus went from being motherless upon the Father's bosom in heaven to fatherless upon a woman's bosom at the cross. Jesus went from being the Ancient of Days to the Infant of Days. Jesus went from heights of glory to the depths of shame. Jesus went from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth. Jesus went from throne to a tree. Jesus went from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth. He went from coronation to curse. This was Jesus. He he, he came to this little town called Bethlehem that's barely mentioned in the Old Testament anywhere except here in Ruth. He's not born in Jerusalem in a palace, in a city that everybody had heard of, in a building that everybody wished they were in, but he's born in a stable. He was... Born next to a bunch of cattle. A place people try to stay away from. His parents were poor. They were uneducated. They were unsophisticated. But his descent was the dawn of mercy. And I think the Christmas carol, Holy Night, captures this well. It's hard to even find Holy Night singing this verse. It's the best verse, I think. Here's what it says. The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger... And all our trials born to be 
heart, friend. He knows our need. To our weakness, he is no stranger. Behold your king before him lowly bent. See, Jesus knew we could never ascend to him. So he descends to us. So you don't need money. You don't need impeccable morality. You don't need strong convictions. You don't need good luck. You don't even have to be pleasant or in a good mood for Jesus to take notice of you. He comes to the lowly and contrite in spirit. In fact, these are the only people he comes to. So if you're lonely this holiday season, if you're too weak to get out of bed, if you've moved from disappointed to despairing, you're in a great place. This is the place that Jesus lived. This is why he came. And he's already taken notice of you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for descending to us. Where we would be if you were not on our side, we shudder to imagine. Oh, Lord, would you continue to dwell with us as we partake in this meal? In Jesus' name, amen.